big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we just have a few quick housekeeping things. First, we want to thank our newest patrons, Rachel, Kaylee, and Allison. Welcome to the team. Over on Patreon, we've just started a new bonus series where we tell our top tier patrons what content we're currently consuming aside from Jane Austen, of course. So if that sounds good to you, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. Next, this episode is going to be our last episode before we dive into Emma. So to prepare for next episode, if you want to read along with us, we're going to be covering the first three chapters of Emma. And now enjoy this week's episode covering the Lizzie Bennet Diaries with our guest, Ashley Clements. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to do our first coverage of the very highly requested Lizzie Bennet Diaries. And we are here joined today by the star of Lizzie Bennet Diaries, believe it or not. Elizabeth Bennet herself. Elizabeth Bennet herself. Ashley Clements, thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to have you here. Elizabeth Bennet incarnate. But not at all. But it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, For our listeners who might not be aware, Ashley played Elizabeth Bennett or Lizzie Bennett in the Lizzie Bennett Diaries on YouTube. Ashley, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners? Sure. I'm Ashley Clements. I'm an actor primarily, but also a writer, producer, sort of uh, all-around creative person at this point. I make things. And I am best known for starring as Lizzie Bennett in the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, the YouTube sensation of 2012. And I'm currently doing a a rewatch of the whole show because it's been 10 years, which is crazy. Truly bonkers. That look back is, it's called the Look Back Diaries, right? It is called the Look Back Diaries because I thought two LBDs was cute. Adorable. Turns out it's also confusing. If our listeners want to check that out, where can they find that? They can find that on my YouTube and they can just search, search YouTube. That's how you can find all this stuff. Fantastic. So every time we have a guest on the show, we ask them a few preliminary questions about their relationship to Jane Austen, starting with a very seminal self-explanatory. What is your relationship to Jane Austen? (laughs) We're pals. We go way, way back. It's true, actually. I was already a big Jane Austen fan before booking the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which actually helped me because I was brand new to Los Angeles. I didn't have an agent yet. I self-submitted for that job. And I wrote in the notes, I'm a big Jane Austen fan and I would love to be a part of the project. And the creator later told me that's why he called me in. So I owe a debt to all the people who introduced me to Jane Austen as a child. Which started with my, uh, I had an elementary school teacher who was British. 
And she told my mom specifically that I get British humor, or I got British humor. I think I still do. And she specifically recommended Jane Austen to my mom. And that started with the very first piece of Austen content that I ever saw was the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma movie, which I absolutely loved as a kid. I have seen that movie so many times, the way that you rewatch movies more as a kid than any other phase of your life. I would request it when I was homesick from school because, you see, back in the 90s, we used to go to these brick and mortar stores and rent physical movies. <laughs> Bust a block, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that is how I watched that movie over and over and over again. And then shortly after was also introduced to the Emma Thompson Sense and Sensibility, which is, you know, incomparable. So those two were for a long time kind of just my my Jane Austen love. And I didn't actually read a book until I was assigned to in high school, sophomore year of high school. I read Pride and Prejudice. And it was a little bit hard for me to get into, but I also absolutely could not admit that. Part of my very nerdy persona as like the Shakespeare theater nerdy kid was that I was super into Jane Austen. So, and I was, but I, I did have a harder time getting into the language, which I think is common. And also I was very young. And then we watched the miniseries in school, but I don't, I didn't really remember it very well. And then you know, other Austin things came out and I continued to consume them and love them. And I was like nerdy enough about it that I was getting Jane Austen themed gifts. I remember I had a book about like, which Jane Austen hero should you end up with? <laughs> like, or or that quiz was in it at least. And I remember my friends and I, you know, going like, ooh, titter, Twitter, titter, whatever like is it are you going to end up with Mr. Darcy or Mr. Knightley or and so that was yeah just like part of my sort of nerdy Shakespeare Jane Austen theater kid thing and then I was cast in the Lisbena Diaries and reread Pride and Prejudice really enjoyed it as an adult and actually enjoyed it so much that just for funsies, went on to read Sense and Sensibility for the first time, and then Emma, and then Persuasion, and just really had a new appreciation for Austin after that. Wow. That is such a lovely origin story. I really owe a lot to that teacher. Yeah, totally. She was like, hey, you're, you're weird kid. She's going to like this. I mean, that's relatable, as we are also both the Shakespeare nerdy girls from school, and we wouldn't have this podcast if Jane Austen didn't go hand in hand with those things. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's absolutely accurate. And I also hyper fixated on a movie in my youth that made me an Austen fan. And that was the 1995 Sense and Sensibility. So very big fan. I mean, I like they were close, but Emma was first. So it's funny because now I've met many Jane Austens. I've been invited to speak at Jane Austen conventions and things, which is just a very strange thing. But I remember bringing up that movie and a whole crowd of people were like, Ooh. <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know that that was not an approved adaptation, but I stand by it. Listen, there's no such thing as a disapproved adaptation. We are going to be covering from Prada to Nada at some point on this show. And we've heard stories <laughs> and that are way worse than anything we've heard about the Gwyneth Paltrow adaptation. 
But this does actually lead me to our second question that I think you answered, which is what's your favorite Austin content? It's it is actually the sense and sensibility. I mean, Ang Lee, Emma Thompson, the fact that she wrote it, won an Oscar and starred in it. It's perfection. It's also such a good adaptation because I knew the film first. When I read the book, I so appreciated what Emma Thompson did with that screenplay because there's no dialogue in the beginning of the book for a long time. It it was her first book. She wasn't as adept with it. And she had to create all of these cinematic scenes to portray things that were just kind of told through omniscient narration at the beginning, which is not super cinematic. It's a very good choice. It also has your standard emotional support, Alan Rickman, in it, which is very important to me. Mm Yeah. What a versatile, versatile actor. My God. Truly. Oh, yes. So obviously you play Lizzie in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, but out of all of Austin's works, which character do you relate to the most? It is Eleanor Dashwood, actually. And I think that that is probably not how I present. But as a young person, I related so much to Eleanor because while I may have presented more like a Marianne, especially as a teenager, what I felt on the inside was knowing the burden of not being able to tell the truth. Mm. We actually have a tagline on this show. Eleanor Dashwood's a goddamn liar because she has problems <laughs> telling the truth. Um, yeah, I very much related to suppress your emotions, push them down. These other things are socially acceptable and you can't you can't do that. But I also, speaking of being like a Shakespeare Jane Austen nerd, I had a I thought friend. Now I would, I guess, say frenemy in high school who at some point gave me a very beautiful copy of Emma. And she inscribed in it that I should read it because I had a lot to learn from Emma. That is the shadiest thing I've ever heard. Right? Like that is some Jane Austen backhanded shade. I did not keep this very beautiful copy because it was tainted. Wow. Oh, God. I mean, Jane Austen's Emma also, as we recently relearned, opens with some crazy shade thrown at the Prince Regent. Um, (laughs) So it feels fitting for there to be an inscription in a copy of Emma that is uh, that rude. But still, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, and I I also hadn't read Emma yet. Oh, so you didn't know? I didn't fully get. I was like, wait, why? What are you saying about me? It wasn't meant kindly. I don't know anything about Emma yet, but from the first three chapters, I told Becca I did not like Emma that much. (laughs) Well, Lizzie Bennet is a very flawed protagonist, but I think Emma is more flawed. So far, I'd agree. I love her, but... You know, she has a journey to go on. Totally. So do you have any Austin hot takes? (laughs) I feel like I have an anti-hot take, especially Mm. because, you know, I did not ever imagine that I would become a person so strongly associated with Jane Austen that I would frequently be asked these questions. My hot take is that You actually cannot compare the 1995 miniseries to the 2005 film of Pride and Prejudice because they're literally different mediums. One of them very successfully tells the story in six hours and with that much time, obviously, can include a lot more detail from the book. The other 
very successfully condenses a much longer story into two hours, which is really difficult to do. And it does it very well and very smartly. It takes events that happen at different parties and balls spread over months, all happen at the same party. What a just smart way to condense it. But they're literally different things. I could not agree more. Yes, that's that's the consensus we have come to on this podcast as well. And we are very entrenched in the whole 2005 versus 1995 drama from our listeners who have um, both on both sides, very strong opinions, very strong opinions. And because I am Anne Elizabeth Bennett, which, again, is a very strange thing to say, people really want me to be on their side and they want me to understand why their side is the right side. And I'm like, they're both great. If I want to spend six hours watching an adaptation of Jane Austen, I know what I want to watch. If I want to watch something in two hours, I have options. And if you want to watch something in eight hours, you can watch yourself as Elizabeth Bennet in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which brings us to our coverage of Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Well transitioned. Thank you. The first question we have for you is how you got involved in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, what the process of auditioning was like, and, you know, how you, you know, made the thing. (laughs) Yeah, I auditioned for this just like any other job. I was very new to Los Angeles. I was right out of grad school, which turned out to be such a benefit to the project because I was just used to dealing with an enormous amount of text. Those muscles were strong at that time. And as I said, I didn't even have an agent yet. So I was just doing a lot of self-submitting and included that little note about a Jane Austen project. And, you know, at that time, the breakdown was just for the original four women. And I looked at it and went, well, based on these descriptions, I'm Lizzie. So I submitted for Lizzie. And then the first audition was, uh, these were all in little kind of rundown rented by the hour spaces that used to be all over Hollywood. I don't know if they survived the pandemic. And the first audition sides didn't even really explain what the vlog format was. I didn't actually know what a vlog was. We haven't mentioned that. The show is a vlog style adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, if you're not familiar, which means that Lizzie Bennett is directly addressing camera and saying, ah, here's my crazy life. Yeah, my sister's in here. What's going on? And I'm so annoyed with this guy, let me tell you about. <laughs> but so the, the first audition sides just said pause, where there were actually going to be jump cuts. And I didn't know what any of that meant. So I just kind of did it like a monologue. And obviously they liked me. They brought me back to callbacks, which were chem reads. I read with everyone. And then I started to get really excited because I was really seeing the show shape up. And actually, that's the point when I reread Pride and Prejudice. I didn't have the job yet. I just was very excited about Jane Austen again. And so when I booked it, I was like, perfect. I just did the research. Wow. I have to say on the uh, blog format thing, it occurred to me watching it again in 2022, sort of, it's like a time capsule for Mm. a very specific medium of social media and art that happened over the course of like five years, very intensely. So any of our listeners who are millennials, 
have like a very strong idea of what a vlog looks like, but I don't know if like our younger listeners or our older listeners have actually experienced like authentic vlogging in the same way we did. Right. Well, and it was also the peak of personality vlogging because I think that format still very much exists on YouTube, but it tends to have more of an explanational or educational bent at this point if someone's just going to sit and talk at the camera for that long. And this was a time when people were just, they had like regular upload times and they would talk about whatever they could think of. And so that meant a variety of things. And some were kind of more sketch-like or character-based. And some of them were just kind of talking about their lives to the camera and creating this parasocial relationship. Yeah. At the time you guys were putting it together and recording, did you guys have a sense of what a sensation it would become? Absolutely not. No, we get asked that question a lot. And the answer is no. In fact, I've been frequently reminded through, I've had guests uh, from various parts of the cast and crew on the Look Back Diaries. And they have reminded me that actually when the show launched, Hank Green is the co-creator and one of those original like peak vloggers who is still doing it. He and his brother, John Green, the author, are still, well, Hank Green is also an author now. I'm so sorry. Both of them are very successful authors and their books are great. I'm not contractually obligated to say that. <laughs> their books are great from the ones I've read. <laughs> yes, do recommend. But so we knew that we had Hank's kind of star power behind it, but he was funding the initial batch and the initial batch was basically the first 24 episodes. And beyond that, if the show wasn't successful, there wasn't going to be any more of it. So wow, that was something that I, I think that they did tell me that at the time. And I just very much put it out of my head because that's not really helpful pressure for me. And so I was just very focused on my job, which was to do a tremendous amount of of work because this is commonly known to people who uh, know the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, but for those who don't, we would film eight episodes a day. We only filmed once a month because it was a very low budget and that was a way to get a lot of content for very little money, which means that we filmed each episode in about an hour, hour 20. Oh my God. And then I immediately changed outfits and maybe changed my hair and... And they were all my clothes as well. So I was preparing at home the outfits that I thought would work for episodes and lining those up and putting those notes. And I only got the final script typically two days before. So this is where I say my grad school training was really useful because yeah. I had about two days with a script that was usually 50 to 60 pages. And we quickly learned that the more memorized I could be, the better the day went. They initially said when I booked the job, he said, you're not going to have to memorize it because of the jump cuts. But there was no teleprompter. Like, I did have to right. memorize it. And we wanted the scenes to feel authentic and not jump cut. So we really wanted those to be memorized. And so it was, yeah, just a, a tremendous amount of work that happened in a really condensed amount of time for me as an actor. 
as a former actor, I rem- I was sitting there this time and actually thinking about the level of rigor it takes to sit and talk for as long as you do through the series. Because I think it's something, it's a hundred episodes that are just strictly Lizzie Bennett diary episodes, but there are Q&As and there are other episodes as well. And I remember looking through all the episodes and thinking, she must be talking for eight hours straight at this point. I have not done the math, but it was a lot of talking. Yeah. And I actually did lose my voice in the first couple shoot days before I figured out that I needed to do like a full warm up as if I was doing outdoor Shakespeare in order to sit in a room and talk for eight hours. That's amazing. Makes a lot of sense after having watched it, but truly amazing. So out of all of those hundred and maybe 160 episodes, of Lizzie Bennet Diaries. I am in 94 episodes plus 10 Q&As. No, sorry, 96. I am in 96 of the 100 official episodes plus uh, 10 Q&As. And then all of the spinoffs, I'm actually not in. The whole idea there was that we could get perspectives that we couldn't get on Lizzie's channel mm-hmm. by giving other people their POV. I, and I loved those spinoffs, especially the Lydia spinoffs, which felt Pretty, Becca told me, I was just watching the Lizzie Bennett Diaries and Becca was like, uh, you should insert the Lydia I was one. like, you have to go back to the full playlist. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So out of all of those, do you have a favorite episode? <laughs> I used to have really clear answers to that. Maybe I will again once my rewatch is complete. I feel like rather than having favorite episodes anymore, I have favorite moments and I have favorite beats and and favorite relationships and yeah I mean some of the Darcy episodes really stand out because I think there are so few of them and so those were very potent for my character but I had such incredible relationships with the actresses playing my sisters and Charlotte who we usually just refer to us all as the Bennett sisters, and we mean Charlotte. Like, obviously, she's she's one of us. And so it was so rewarding and so lovely to play with all of them. You know, like, 42 is a standout because that's the first episode that got serious. And that's the fight between Lizzie and Charlotte after Charlotte, in our version, accepts a job offer from Mr. Collins. And we were really nervous about how our audience would feel when we took this very light comedy into a darker place. And it was really rewarding. And we were, the fans very much responded to it. We felt like we'd earned it at that point. But I remember rehearsing so much extra with Julia Cho, the actress who played Charlotte, so that we would really get that. So that's a, that's a special memory for me. But, you know, anytime that I got to do costume theater, those are always favorite moments. And yeah, I mean, I feel like as I continue to do my rewatch, people are going to show up and I'm going to be like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I love this person. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's it's so weird to look back uh, 10 years ago and have so much of your life at the time be on camera. Yeah. Not that that was my life, but it immediately brings back all the memories of what was going on around it. Absolutely. And I will say one of the things that's so brilliant about the show for me is, first of all, the very light touch of Darcy, because when he's on, it's much more potent. The fact that he comes back just in time for what in the novel is what we call here proposal get in. And (laughs) before that, he's just 
one of your characters you play on your vlog. And then also, this is something my boyfriend Mike was watching with me as I was going through this this time, and he had never seen it before. And he was saying, basically, there's a very specific style to most of the show that's really comedy, that's really funny, it's really campy. And what makes those serious moments so earned is how when you guys go into them, they feel earned through the funniness. So they it's not an overly bleak or dramatic show and it's not overly hyped up, funny, quirky all the time. You guys find a good balance there. So I really, it's really such a joy to rewatch it again. But you brought up costume theater, which does bring me to the next question, which is you play... Mrs. Bennett, you play Mr. Bennett, you play Catherine de Berg, you play Darcy. Did you have a favorite character of those characters to play on your vlog? And for our listeners who haven't seen it, essentially, Ashley was Lizzie, but Lizzie play acts a lot of different characters from her life for her viewers on her vlog. And that means Ashley is playing not only one of the most iconic heroines of all time, but also several people related to her story. I mean, and what a dream, right? As actors, we we want to play all the roles and then to actually get to do it. This was actually a fairly common, I guess, kind of technique used in vlogging at the time that people would play multiple characters. I mean, you still see that on TikTok, right? The sort of version of that where people intercut between themselves in different shirts and things like that. But the sort of costume theater specifically of relaying things that happened in your real life was happening on YouTube at the time. And it was a blast. And it's 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 Mama Bennett. Of course, it's Mama Bennett. <laughs> Every actor dreams of playing Mrs. Bennett. Like you want to play Lizzie, but Mrs. Bennett's where you're going to have the most fun. The most fun. And what a cool thing. I hadn't actually even thought of it until you put it that way, because other people do costume theater as well. Jane at some point plays, um, I always call her Mama Bennett and because it, it's fun for me. And also because in our version, she's a, a Southern belle. So I'm like, Mama, <laughs> that's Mama Bennett. But those impressions were all ultimately based on my version of Mrs. Bennett. I did, for the most part, pretty much establish all of the costume theater characters. I think Mr. Bennett is an exception. Actually, no, I do play Mr. Bennett at some point, but Charlotte plays him first. Mm-hmm. And I never play Caroline Bingley. Charlotte also plays her the only time. But the rest of the times, I do think that I established the costume theater for the most part. And Mama Bennett was the only piece of costume theater in the initial audition. And they did suggest Southern, but they said, you know, any kind of crazy accent would be fine. And I was like, well, Southern works with this, which is why they wanted it to to be that way because there's this sort of idea of being stuck in the past in this sort of you know debutante southern bell way and just such a blast to just you couldn't go too far that's a really fun thing about this medium is that you couldn't overact it because the character is aware that they're acting so it's a blast a total blast That's actually a really uh, great transition into our next question, which is what was the most fun part of bringing Austin to the YouTube medium? And also, what was the hardest part? I mean, I think if I take a step back, the most fun part about bringing it specifically to YouTube 
was that this show was responsible for introducing a lot of young people to Austin. And that was something that we would hear over and over again in 2012 and 2013, which is when the show ended. It ran for a full year in real time. We would go to conventions and signings and various events and meet fans face to face. And we heard so often that this was how they got introduced to Pride and Prejudice, that this is how they discovered Jane Austen. And that's very much heavily represented in the comments on YouTube as well. One girl told us that we introduced her to Jane Austen and she used the show to introduce her mom to YouTube and that it was a way that they could connect and share something. So I think being a part of that legacy is very, very cool. It did not occur to me to introduce my incredibly Austin-obsessed mother to YouTube through this (laughs) show, and I am furious at myself that I didn't do that sooner. (laughs) Well, look, some mothers are never going to be big into YouTube, and that's fine, because we need their Netflix passwords. I'm just kidding. I have my own Netflix. I'm an adult. (laughs) But yeah, it was just lovely to hear that and how many people, because I, and I related to it so much, I, I said this earlier that I didn't immediately respond to the language. And I was, you know, 15, I guess, the first time I read Pride and Prejudice. But I realized when I was rereading Pride and Prejudice and reading all the other Austin in my 20s, that I could appreciate the books so much more when I already knew the story, because I wasn't trying to puzzle that out. And then I could really enjoy the language. And for me, the most fun part of the novels is Jane Austen's voice. And that's the part that we cannot translate to film adaptations. It it is her kind of wry, observant, judgmental sense of humor that is in the narration. And that uniquely exists in the books. But then when I knew who everyone was and I wasn't going like, wait, who is the the Hursts? Who are these people? (laughs) What did they have to do with the story? That I could just relax and really enjoy it. And so I never shame anyone who says that they loved a film or the Lizzie Bennet Diaries or, or what have you first, because I needed to know the story. And I already knew Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and Emma so well from watching many different versions many times. But when I picked up Persuasion, I actually had not seen a film of it and I struggled a lot more. And then I went, well, there must be a film adaptation of this. Why don't I watch that first so that I can then focus on the language and not be worried about the plot? Don't ask me about the new Persuasion. I haven't seen it. We haven't either, if that makes you feel any better. We are also consistently asked by people on Instagram if we've seen that movie and we have to say, "Eh, you're going to have to give it a few years. Based on what I've heard, I would say definitely don't watch that one before the book because it sounds different. Yeah. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. 
After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Yes. So speaking of the story, one of the things that is sort of emblematic of Austin being adapted to the modern day generally, but is specifically a part of the Lizzie Bennet diaries and the fabric of it, is taking elements of the story that are dated or don't really make sense in the 21st century and putting them into a context that makes sense to our modern sensibilities. So some examples, spoiler alert, if at this point in time you have seen the Lizzie Bennet diaries, uh, would be Mr. Collins offering Lizzie and Charlotte the same tech job instead of a proposal for marriage and Charlotte being practical about that, or possibly most iconically from this adaptation, uh, the relationship between Lydia and Wickham and how that plays out. So for those changes in the story, was there one when you were working on it or reflecting on it now that stands out to you as a really great translation of the story? I think the writers did such an incredible job with so many of the major beats. There are times in the smaller scenes where I'm saying this in the Look Back Diaries, we get a little bogged down in the minute details, but those big arcs, I think we did some really cool things. And I agree that the Lydia Wickham thing is one of the Lizzie Bennett Diaries' greatest achievements. I think that the Lizzie Bennett Diaries' greatest achievement is actually centering the female relationships, which wasn't necessarily the intention, but because this is all being told Lizzie Bennett's POV. The reason we get so little Darcy, so little of any of the men is because the first large chunk of the show, we are mostly in Lizzie's bedroom. And why would those people be in Lizzie's bedroom? It's very weird when Mr. Collins pushes his way into Lizzie's bedroom, which (laughs) he does. And there are times that we had to sort of stretch the bounds of what was possible. But we also had to get Lizzie out of her bedroom so that we could introduce Darcy because he just wasn't going to be in there. But what that meant is that It really centers the relationships and friendships between the sisters. And I include Charlotte as one of my sisters. And I think that that is probably the coolest thing that the Lizzie Bennet Diaries did. Everything that happened with Lydia and Wickham is a development that came out of 
how the show was responded to. The spoiler, the sex tape was planned from the beginning. But the Lydia vlogs, which is a spinoff that Lydia had all on her own, which reveals Lydia's side of that. The concept of Lydia having her own show developed because the audience responded so well to her and she wasn't going to be in the Netherfield arc because she's not. And so the creators gave her her own show and said, well, here's more Lydia for you. And what that turned into, I think, is also one of the most powerful things that the Lizzie Bennet Diaries does. But I think that the centering of the female relationships is my favorite part. Other than turning Kitty into a cat, that is the crowning achievement. <laughs> I, I would have to agree. Both of those are peak, absolute peak. The relationship between particularly, in my opinion, Charlotte and Lizzie is really beautiful to watch. All the relationships are really stunning, but that one in particular, I think, is one where you don't get as much time caring about their friendship in the book as you end up having in this adaptation. But Kitty as a kitty is elite. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why that hasn't been done more. It's so brilliant. Like, because other things, you know, I don't know if Fire Island saw the Lizzie Bennet Diaries before they came up with Sex Tape Scandal. I don't know. Could just be in the zeitgeist. It makes sense. But if you're going to copy stuff, why isn't Kitty a cat? This is smart. Right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I was actually thinking that during the, during watching it, this morning with the sex tape, I was thinking Fire Island. They, and uh, surely those creators watched this. It was literally my thought when I was watching the movie, which I totally enjoyed, by the way, and I think is a very clever adaptation. Yes. I, the, no shade at Fire Island. But when that happened, I went, oh, do you think that, that these people have seen the Lizzie Bennett <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And to be to be charitable, I'm wondering if this falls into what I have coined as the justice for Margaret phenomenon, which is when you have Jane Austen adaptations that become so iconic that they create canon that isn't in the original books, but everyone just decides it's part of the books. So my example for that is the character of Margaret Dashwood in Emma Thompson's writing of Sense and mm -hmm, Sensibility. Mm -hmm. Margaret essentially has no character in the book, but every adaptation since that 1995 adaptation has Margaret with this sort of like cheeky tomboy energy that she has in the Emma Thompson writing. So my thing is, did the Lizzie Bennet diaries definitively decide what the equivalent of the Wickham Lydia scandal is in the 21st century? And that Lydia is a fully fleshed out human being who we can actually feel bad for? Maybe. I mean, I, I will not be so bold as to take credit. I will just say I have noticed some similarities in these adaptations. <laughs> and one of them came first. And also on the subject of Lydia and us feeling bad for her, I cried during the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, I think five times. Oh, wow. And all of them were related to Lydia. Mm -hmm. But the biggest one was Lydia and Lizzie's relationship and Lydia coming in to Lizzie and Lizzie's yelling at her about the sex tape and then Lydia, she realizes Lydia doesn't know and Lydia starts crying into Lizzie's shoulder and then she's like, no, I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone. And Lizzie's like, yes, you do come here. And I just, I was a mess, a disaster. It's so beautiful, but it's like, it's something that we don't get in any other adaptation. I think that the 2005 does it pretty well and uh, the Empire Island does it pretty well, the sisters loving each other. But 
Lydia and Lizzie, I feel like that relationship never really gets flushed out except for here. And it truly touched my heart like no other. Episode 87. See, there are numbers that I know, and that is one of my favorites as well. That is what I hear the most about from viewers, other than just kind of, you know, general Jane Austen and and love of it. Very specifically, people reach out to me and Mary-Kate Wiles, who played Lydia, to say what an impact that had on them personally, either because they learned something about a relationship they were in and needed to leave, or because they started to understand and respect their younger sister differently. The show was so very online that, you know, I still have way too much social media, but I'm accessible. And so I would just, I would get inundated with these messages for a long time after the show ended too. But that, that is absolutely the thing I hear the most about. You know, occasionally I'll, I'll get a, and this is very 2012, a squee for <laughs> Lizzie and Darcy, but an actual, oh, wow, I learned something about myself comes from that relationship. And I think, oh, I know I'm just giving the show a lot of different credit here. But another thing that the show very successfully does is that Lizzie's journey is not just about learning that she misjudged Darcy, but learning that she misjudged her sister. I think that the show does a really fantastic job of tying not just her judgment of Lydia to her judgment of Darcy, but generally her judgment of Charlotte, of Ricky Collins, and also just her belief in her own worldview so strongly in a way that I think is really smart and pulls the show into more of a coming of age than a romance necessarily in a way that's very enjoyable. The thing about the Lydia story for me is that it kind of throws into stark light how messed up the original story is for Lydia. And if you read it, there's not so much dignity given to Lydia in that situation. But if you kind of take a step back and realize what actually happens to her, it's so messed up that it requires another level of empathy that the characters don't necessarily give her. And I think that seeing modern adaptations, yours being a real standout on this, take the time to give the character space to have some grace is a very refreshing way to see the story and also to change the reading of the story that was originally written in like the early 1800s. You know, we see these archetypes in in Jane Austen, and I don't mean to spoil anything if you haven't read all the books. And I haven't read all the books. I haven't read Northanger Abbey or Mansfield Park, but I have seen the movie of Mansfield Park that many people say is not a faithful adaptation. <laughs> but within the familiarity that I do have with Jane Austen, having read the four major works and seen film adaptations of, of all of them, she does have these repeated character types and some similar story beats that play out in different scenarios but but there's a, a there are other fallen women and Jane Austen does not actually have a lot of empathy for those characters I would say she does not write an empathetic Lydia and she does not as the omniscient narrator have a lot of empathy for Lydia who broke the rules the rules are very clear. And this is a society, I mean, Bridgerton, I think, takes this way too far, but there are consequences 
I love Bridgerton, but they're all, all running around going, if I'm seen in the garden, I'll be murdered. <laughs> like, okay, calm down. But <laughs> she did something really outside the bounds. She had premarital sex. She is ruined. And that also ruins the family. And so, you know, I don't blame Jane Austen for not having empathy for her because the rules of society were such that she can't really excuse that kind of behavior. And, you know, the, there's this kind of continued, you know, there's there's the good guys, there's the rake, and you know Sense and Sensibility. So I can say, like, Wickham and Willoughby cut from the same cloth. Yeah, never trust a W name. <laughs> right. And we learn that Willoughby, it's it's all off sort of, you know, outside the the realm of this, but Willoughby did do this to someone else. We just don't know that character. Right. And what we get out of it is a shaming of him. And we do have empathy for her, just as we have empathy for Georgiana Darcy, who was not ruined, but it came close, (laughs) it seems. And so it's interesting how, yes, we don't paint Lydia as a victim. We paint her as actually having a lot of agency. And I don't mean we as that, like, Jane Austen gives her a lot of agency. She made those choices. She made her bed. She's going to lie in them. Now, she's 15 and he's a predator. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) exactly. We see that differently now. But I like the Lizzie Bennet Diaries take on it. I like that who hasn't (laughs) picked the wrong guy and the consequences are much higher than just going, oh, wow, this guy sucks. I need to leave. Right. And so that that's powerful for a lot of people, too. Also, uh, speaking of Georgiana, I think that the Lizzie Bennet Diaries also gives her a lot more agency than the book did because, again, spoiler alert, I'll put a spoiler alert at the top of the episode, but <laughs> she gets Wickham to download her company's app and that's how Darcy's able to track him down. And she does that against his wishes, but she's like, I want to help. I need to help Lydia not have the same thing happen to her as me. And... I was like, I cheered. <laughs> yes, you go, Georgie. <laughs> Gigi, Gigi. I call her Georgie. Our little Gigi. Yes, she gets agency in two ways. She is instrumental in meddling and getting Lizzie and Darcy together. She's sort of the like human personification of the old internet meme. Now kiss. <laughs> Which I love that she gets there from watching Lizzie's vlogs and she's like, yes, this girl gets my my brother. Like, I want her to end up with him. I mean, rewatching it, girl's obsessed. She's obsessed with him. So something's going on. That's not somebody you really dislike. When Collins leaves, she stops talking about Collins. Right. She cannot stop talking about Darcy. And then the other way that we give Gigi agency is, as you say, she gets to be a part of having revenge on someone who hurt her, which is just very satisfying. And very powerful, too. She really, like, takes it into her own hands to stop him from hurting another person. So good one for Gigi. Also, this is completely off topic and off script. But for some reason, you guys were 100% successful in getting actors with family resemblances. Isn't that crazy? I mean, she got the job because her acting was the best. But when she came in, we were like, oh, my God. I mean, to quote Daniel Vincent Gord, who plays Darcy, she looks more like my sister than my sister. (laughs) It's crazy. It's pretty nuts. I mean, ultimately, when you put Mary-Kate Wiles and Laura Spencer, the three Bennett sisters, uh, when you put the three of us together and we all have red hair, you're like, yeah, they're sisters. If we didn't all have red hair, you know, 
rarely on shows do people really look like they're such family. But if we didn't all have red hair, I don't think that people would assume as much that we might actually be real sisters. But when you put when you put those two together, the Darcy's, it is just shocking. Absolutely shocking. You're like, wait, they don't have the same parents, but they're not related. Yeah, she came on screen for the first time and I was what my girlfriend was cooking and I was watching and I just go, that's Georgiana. And she's never read Pride and Prejudice, so she has no idea what I'm talking about. She's like, what? I'm like, never mind. But I just knew. Yeah. Oh, that one has to be. I mean, if not, this was badly cast. She must be family. Yeah. So speaking of iconic women characters, I guess Jane Austen has a lot of iconic heroines. What was it like playing potentially her most iconic heroine? It's so strange to be a part of that legacy. It's not something I thought as much about at the time, and I'm very glad. People started asking me about halfway through the show, but I I was just concerned with doing my job. I was very concerned with making the best show possible. You know, I knew many different versions of Pride and Prejudice, so I knew many different iterations of Lizzie, but then my ultimate source and guide was the text. And then as I got to have more ownership over the character, because I was also very familiar with the material, I was able to say, hey, that doesn't feel like what Liz, how Lizzie would respond to that. That doesn't feel right. What about this? I think, yes, that that aligns with with where she is. So in that way, I was thinking about about it, but I wasn't ever thinking I am now playing one of the most iconic heroines in the English lexicon. Like, it, I, I couldn't have functioned if I thought that way. Totally. What is very, very, very strange, but what an honor, is that I'm on the list of women who played Elizabeth Bennet, and sometimes that comes up. Like, I'm a millennial. I have a Google alert for my name. And the things that come up are lists of Lizzie Bennett's and of adaptations of Jane Austen. And the fact that, you know, here we are 10 years later, and that's still, that's always going to be something that, that is true of me, that people associate me with. And it's so strange. It's so strange to be on lists with Jennifer Ely and Keira Knightley forever. (laughs) Like what? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say you're up there with our girls, Jen and Kira. So which, by the way, if either one of you want to come on this podcast, we can't have only one Lizzie on. Now that we've had one iconic Lizzie on, we need all the iconic Lizzie. They are listening right now, and they are so <laughs> excited you finally asked. <laughs> this actually brings us to our last question, and it's related to the one you just answered. But as we've mentioned a couple times during this podcast, and also if you watch the Lizzie Bennett diaries and check out the the hair and outfits of the time. This show did come out 10 years ago. Do you have any insight into playing Lizzie or any perspective on that character 10 years down the line? What Lizzie Bennett gave me was learning how judgmental I was. And that began in 2012. And the rewatch has been really interesting in just noting all the ways that I've grown since then. But there were a lot of things at the time that I did not even see as Lizzie being judgmental because I just agreed with her. And then there were a lot of things that she got called out on that I learned in real time. Oh, that's not 
that's not okay. And it was really rewarding and powerful to actually go on that journey with her and playing that character made me a better person. And so, you know, there's so many things 10 years. I can't believe we're still talking about this show 10 years later. I can't believe I'm on these lists. I can't believe the show has endured like this because it does really feel like a time capsule, but I, I feel forever changed by it. And I'm so grateful that I got to do it. That is so beautiful. And what a way to end the episode. Listeners, I watched it all in the last four days, and I I feel like a better person for having watched it, (laughs) honestly. It works great as a binge, but also great as a study break because the episodes are like three to five minutes. Exactly. It's usually I'm watching for like two hours, though, because they just keep going. So like, just it's just playing in the background, and I'm like, I might as well watch one more. What's another four minutes? (laughs) And it's such a different experience, I think, to watch it that way than, you know, when it happened in 2012, you got three to five minute episodes twice a week. And then there was social media. The characters were all on social media. That's a whole other part of the show that we actually won an Emmy for. Wow. The show won an Emmy for original interactive show. And it is interactive because the characters can be engaged with, could be, in past tense, engaged with through various social medias. Jane had a lookbook, which now would be Instagram, but Instagram was not nearly as big a thing as it was then. And Gigi had a This Is My Jam, which used to be a way that you could share what you were listening to. And actually, during the very beginning of the show, months before that character ever appeared, she was posting like breakup songs because she was breaking up with George Wickham at the time. And the characters would talk to each other. So there would be little story bits in between. And then you, as the the viewer and and a person with a Twitter account, could also interact with them. And that's what those Q&As are. The Q&A episodes don't really affect the plot, but they show some character and they are actual comments from, from viewers. So the viewers didn't necessarily directly impact the plot. It was not a choose your own adventure, but they were very much a part of the story. And as I mentioned earlier, the things that they responded to got more air and they got Lydia's side of the Wickham story because they responded so much to it. And then likewise, just the expanded universe of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries with all the spinoffs are because of the way that fans interacted with it. So that's another like whole other part of the legacy that because I was less involved with that side, I forget to to point to. But it was very different to experience the show in real time than to binge it now. But they're both valid. And you can find some of that social media stuff out there, but it's it's a little hard to find. Yeah, I actually was in that early cohort watching along with uh, the Lizzie Bennett Diaries way back in my freshman year of college <laughs> but it, it to this day it's still one of the coolest and most creative ways of presenting a story I've seen on that note Ashley thank you so much for joining this is a little surreal for me honestly so it's been really cool to talk to you do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet if they don't already follow you <laughs> uh yeah I'm at the Ashley Clem which is the first four letters of my last name on all the social things. And, you know, just search 
for me on YouTube and stuff. I feel at this point like, just Google me. I'm the top Ashley Clements. I'm the most famous one. Yeah. It's a very common name, but I'm the most famous one. <laughs> That's fantastic. Because of the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. There you go. Well, thank you again for joining us. And listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, stay proper. And uh, interact with some people on the lookbook. Or go watch the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. <laughs> <laughs> Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.